0: Open your Bibles to First Corinthians fourteen. First Corinthians, Chapter fourteen. We are in our study of the first. Letter to the Corinthians, and we are in chapter 14. If you're visiting with us today, we go section by section, verse by verse, going through the Bible, seeking to understand what God's Word has for us. And so we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians 14 again this week. Well, it was a cool November afternoon in 2003 and my girlfriend, Dana, and I went on a date to Indianapolis. And I would made this book out that had different pages with different destinations in Indianapolis, and that we were to go to. And uh, it was kind of like a treasure map. And so we went to the first location, and each location that we went to reminded us of a memory in our dating experience. And so we had this book and this book would tell us where to go. So went to the first place and opened up the book and it told us, you know, where the next place was. It had some clues in there and we went to the next place. And so kind of a romantic thing. And throughout the night, went to different uh, destinations. Finally, we ended at the last destination and there was the treasure. And I gave her the treasure. What do you think it was? It was a ring, that's right. And I asked her to marry me and she said, what? No, (laughs) she said yes. She said yes. She also said what too. (laughs) She was surprised. Well, as we're working through 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I think we probably should think about this text of scripture kind of like a treasure map. There are destinations and topics, theological topics that we need to explore some are quite mysterious, like prophesying and tongues. Yet these theological destinations are going to take us to the ultimate treasure, and that is building up the church. And so I put a little treasure map up there. I want you to think about what we're doing as a journey to the destination of what God wants for us, and that is that He wants us, the church, to be built up spiritually and to build other people up spiritually. And so what he's doing in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, he's leading us to this destination of building up the church. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we studied spiritual gifts that equip us to build up the church. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we were exhorted to minister those gifts with love, and then in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1, we saw the principle of passion, and that is that we are to zealously use those gifts to build up the church. And we saw the, the, the principle of the purpose of our gatherings, the principle of purpose, and that is that we are to intentionally be here on a weekly basis to gather with our, God's people for the purpose of being edified. Of building each other up. Then we saw the principle of proclamation. That is that we build one another up with the proclamation of God's holy word. And so last week and the week before that, we really focused on that. And for the Corinthian church, one of the primary ways they heard God's word was through prophets and those who spoke with the gift of prophesying. And we saw that that proclamation of God's word must be important. It must be primary in the local church. That was kind of like a, a theological jungle we almost got lost in, but hopefully you came out on the other side. And so prophecy we learned last week of prophesying was the supernatural ability to receive revelation from God and then to relay that to the church. And we said that in the early church here, the Corinthian church, they had these New Testament prophets. They had those with the gift of prophesying. And that meant that they could receive special revelation through dreams and visions or the Holy Spirit out loud speaking to them in some way. And we said that that was unique for that time and redemptive history. That's not something that God is doing in the church today. We don't have prophets. We don't have those with the ability to hear directly from God and speak to God's people. And why is that? Because we have the inscripturated New Testament. We have the sufficient word of God in the Old and New Testament. And therefore, that gift This is not needed, and it does not function in that way today. Now, the question is, how was that teaching on prophesying, how was that relevant to today? If that's not something that God is using in our church today, we don't have prophets or those with the gift of prophesying like they did in that early church, then how is that relevant? Well, the last three weeks, Dane and I have been asked, oddly enough, randomly by people about a particular church in Simi Valley. Let me just give you what I read on this church website. I'll quote, in revelatory, they say their church is rooted in, quote in revelatory teaching, the prophetic deliverance, healing, and manifestations of miracles, signs, and wonders. In fact, I didn't see any theological statement on the website. All I saw was, that was what their church is about. And so I thought, well, I'll just listen to a little bit of a video of their teaching. And so I saw their service from Thursday night. And they have those that claim to be prophets in the church, apostles in the church. And again, like we said, that is not what the New Testament teaches, that that is something that's still around today. They believe they receive direct revelation from God. And so let me just read a little bit from this sermon that I heard. This is what this preacher said. How many understand, I'm quoting now, how many understand when you are a living epistle? God's intention was not for his word to be in a book. His intention was for you and I to be a living epistle. Watch this. Not the book read by all men, but your life read by all men. So notice this part. God's intention was not for his word to be in a book. So, so is this relevant, what we're teaching, is this relevant for today? And the answer is yes, because that sounds so spiritual, and with passion and exhortation, it actually maybe even feels right, but it's actually false teaching. Because God did, did intend his words to be in a book. That's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture, that's speaking of this right here, that which is written down, the writings, all writings, the holy writings, is breathed out by God. And so there is the, a need for us to teach on this because this is something that is prevalent. You're going to run into it not only in, uh, in on the internet, but you're going to run into it in our city as well. And so Paul here in in First Corinthians chapter 14, he says, desire prophesying. So, what does that look like for us today? Well, 2 Peter 1, 19 and 20, Peter said that we have a more certain word of prophesying. We have a more certain prophetic word. And what is that more certain prophetic word? Well, first Peter or 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 says, It's the scripture. And so let's fill our service. Let's fill our lives with the Word of God. And the next, the next place on this journey that we're taking to build up the church is found in the principle of profitability. This is the next principle we're going to look at this week and next, and that is that a local church, that is that a local church profits in building up one another by maturing the mind, not by religious experience. So the principle of profitability is that a local church profits or benefits in building up one another by maturing the mind, not by religious experience. Many people gather in religious facilities Some even come to churches in the hopes for a spiritual high. They long to feel close to God, so they're looking for a spiritual, a religious experience. They desire to be revved up. They want to be fired up. And so they're looking for this euphoric adrenaline boost. And so they want to come into a place maybe that has the candle's lit, and they can light a candle themselves. Or mo- maybe the music is, is such a way that just helps them kind of get lifted up and they feel like they're closer to God. Or maybe there's these rhythmic chants that over and over just kind of bring them closer and higher. And, and You can watch some services online, you can see this, and it's, there's different flavors of this, but all has really the same heart, and that is this desire to be, to experience God by some kind of emotional, pragmatic system. And so churches often can manipulate, some religious institutions do manipulate the crowd to try to get a certain response. And they call that that emotionalism, they call that pragmatic way of doing church, they call that that spiritual high, they call it revival, or they call it worship, or they call it spirituality. But it's all manufactured in the name of the Holy Spirit. It's all fluff, it's empty, there's nothing really to it. It's like a a big bag of cotton candy. And if you take that big bag of cotton candy and you put a little water in it, what happens? It all turns to sugar, right? And if you were to eat that big bag of cotton candy, it wouldn't be nutritious. And it would leave you not filled up. So Paul, in this text of scripture, is warning the church not to seek spiritual experiences, but to seek to have your mind built up and renewed by the word of God. In fact, look at this down in verse 20. We're going to end the service looking at verse 20. So let's start there. Verse 20 of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 20 says, Brothers, this is kind of his conclusion. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Which we're going to see is how they were thinking. Because the Corinthian church, they tried to experience God through these tongues speaking. And he's saying, you're being children in your thinking. So he says, don't be children in your thinking. I mean, yes, Verse 20, be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. And so what we're going to see here in this text is Paul is telling the Corinthian church that spiritual experiences don't build you up, but God's word builds you up as it renews your mind. That's why this week, church, I'm encouraging you to memorize Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Because spiritual change, spiritual transformation is found with the renewal of the inner person. See, you want to change your life? Some people really want to change their life they're going to this and they're going to that and they're trying to, to get something and feel something so they can be changed. And God says the change happens on the inside by the power of his Holy Spirit through his holy word. So this week and next week, we're going to examine the the principle of profitability, and we're going to do that through the study of the gift of tongues. So uh, once again, we're going to go into the jungle, and hopefully we'll find our way back out to the destination of building up the church. Now, when I say the gift of tongues, what do you think about? What comes to your mind when I say the gift of tongues? And I, I imagine there's a lot of different views I know there's a lot of different views in the world, but maybe even in this room. And so the question is not, what do you think the gift of tongues is? The question isn't even really, what have you been taught the gift of tongues is? Or what have you even experienced with the gift of tongues? The question is what? When we think about what is the gift of tongues, what do we think about? What does the Bible say, right? What does God's word say? And that's what we're going to do. We're going to study God's word, and we're going to mature our minds in regard to what is the gift of tongues. I have a piece of paper in your bulletin that has a lot of this written in it. I wrote a lot of it out, so hopefully that can help you. But you also want to take a pen and take notes as well this morning. There are only seven passages of scripture in all of the New Testament that speak of the gift of tongues. And think about that, because the amount of emphasis that some preachers put on the gift of tongues, you would think it's everywhere in the New Testament. But actually, no, there's only three books of the Bible that you find the gift of tongues in, and it's only mentioned in seven different chapters. So here are the chapters. I put them up on the screen here. First is Mark chapter 16, verse 17. The gift of tongues there is predicted. The only time in the Gospels is it's talked about it's predicted in that passage in acts 2 acts 10 acts 19 the gift of tongues is described there's a historical account of tongues taking place and then in 1 corinthians chapter 12 and 13 and 14 in verse in chapter 12 uh, of 1 corinthians the gift of tongues is listed it's listed as one of the spiritual gifts for the church of corinth Chapter 13, it's predicted that it's going to cease. So it's predicted in chapter 13 that it's going to end on its own when it's not needed anymore. And I think our conclusion from this is going to be that that has already happened. And then chapter 14, the practice of the gift of tongues is corrected. It's corrected because it was being misused. And interesting enough, the gift of tongues is not listed... And any other of the, of the uh, passages of Scripture that speak of spiritual gifts. Ephesians 4, Romans chapter 12, 1 Peter chapter 4. Those are four, or those are three passages that deal with spiritual gifts, and the gift of tongues is not listed for those churches and in those passages. So in the seven passages that we're gonna study here on tongues, the use of the gift of tongues was never taught. The use of the gift of tongues was never commanded to be sought. And the use of tongues was never chaotically wrought. I just had to rhyme, okay? But the idea is it was never taught. There's no passages that tell you how to speak in tongues. It's never commanded to be sought. There's no passages that say, hey, you need to do this and it's never chaotically wrought. It's never just people just speaking and rolling on the ground and, and haphazardly yelling out things. The only passage that gives any instruction on the gift of tongues is 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So what I would like to do is ask of these texts of Scripture four questions. First of all, what was the gift of tongues? Secondly, why did God give the gift of tongues? That is a very important question. We're not going to get to that question until next week, but I'll, I'll mention it a couple times this week. And then number three, who received the gift of tongues? Number four, what rules governed the exercise of tongues? And so first, the first question is, what was the gift of tongues? And again, like I said, this is in your notes. Tongues was a supernatural gift To praise God in a real human language which was unknown to the speaker. The prayer could only be understood if someone supernaturally translated that language or if that person already knew that language. And so this tongues was a supernatural gift to praise God. It's a prayer in a real human language which the the speaker did not know that language. So let's first start actually in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, because I want you to see in 1 Corinthians 12 that it was a supernatural gift. So go to 1 Corinthians 12, look in verse 8. Notice this is something that was given by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 8, for to one is given, notice, through... The Spirit, and then he lists the gifts of the Spirit for the Corinthian church. And look at verse 10. And one of these gifts is to another gifts, I'm sorry, to another various kinds of tongues. And then also, also notice wedded to that, to another, the interpretation of tongues. So this is a supernatural ability given by the Holy Spirit. And notice tongues and interpretation, or you could say, translation, go together. They go together like a a lock and a key. Now, on Thursday, we unfortunately had one of our cars have the doors locked, and the key was left inside. And we only have one key. I know, that's foolish, isn't it? But that's what it was, and so that was very frustrating. We called AAA, they came and they got the key out for us. But, but locks and keys depend on each other. They need one another to work. A lock is no good without a key, and a key is no good without a lock. How many of you have a drawer full of keys and you don't know what they go to? Okay, so the, you can just throw those away, right? Because they don't do you any good. And that's the same idea with the gift of Tongues and interpretation, they go together. They're needed to go together. And so look back at 1 Corinthians 14, because I want you to see what the gift of tongues is. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, look at verse number one. What were they doing when they utilized the gift of tongues? 1 Corinthians 14, verse one, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy, verse two, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. Okay. What is going on in verse number two? Well, evidently the tongue speaker is gifted with the ability to praise God. And here's the odd part. He is praying in a Foreign human tongue that the speaker doesn't know himself. And so that's why we said tongues was a supernatural gift to praise God in a real human language, which was unknown to the speaker. And notice verse number two this is a prayer of praise. Verse two the one who speaks in a tongue, or you could say human languages, speaks not to men, but to God. When someone speaks to God, what are they doing? What are they doing? They're praying. So this person here is praying. And he says, for no one understands him. Why doesn't anyone understand him? Because he's speaking in a foreign language that they don't know. No one understands him. Unless what? Unless someone interprets, unless there's a supernatural interpretation of that language, or as we'll see in Acts chapter two, unless someone already knows that language. So, the, so they can't understand that prayer unless someone supernaturally translates that language, or unless someone already knows that language. And so what does the prayer entail? Look at the very end of verse two. What does the prayer entail? Well, it's not a prayer of petition or a prayer of confession. It's a prayer of praise. He utters mysteries in the spirit. Now, what is that speaking about? Well, the reality is we don't have anything recorded, any of those prayers recorded, so we don't really know. But we could look at that word mystery, and what do we think about when we look at the word mystery? Mystery. So the word mystery is used by Paul in the New Testament to tell of a New Testament revelation of the gospel that was once hidden to the Old Testament saints, but now for New Testament saints, saints it is revealed. When we went to Israel last year, we uh, would go into these old buildings and some of the old churches. When I say old, I mean, these things aren't like 10 to 20 years old. Like these things are hundreds of years, centuries old, Right. And you'd have these big doors, and they're made of wood, they're hand-carved. And, you know, curiosity tells you to go try to see if the door can open and see what's behind it, right? And I'm the kind of person where I see those kind of things. Everyone else is looking at all the shrines or whatever you're supposed to look at over here. And I'm like, I wonder what's behind that door. And you know what? They don't all open. You know how I know? I tried. (laughs) And one of them actually almost got kicked out of the place for doing so. But when you did open up the door and you saw what was behind there, it's kind of cool. You know, you see, and what it is, is it's a mystery behind that door. But once the door is opened, the mystery is revealed. And that's what you're seeing here. Paul is saying, Paul, he said the Old Testament saints, they had a mystery to the gospel. They had a mystery to what Christ was going to do, the Messiah was going to do. But Paul was the one with the other apostles who opened the door of the mystery to reveal it. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, We are stewards of the mysteries of God. Well, what are those mysteries of God? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 said it's Christ crucified. That's the wisdom of God. That's the mystery of God. That was once hidden from Old Testament saints. Yes, they knew something was going to happen. They could discern that maybe from Isaiah 53 that the Messiah would suffer in some way. But when Christ came, he was revealed. His work of redemption was revealed. And now we know the mystery. It's that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 51 has another mystery that is revealed. Another gospel mystery. Behold... I tell you a mystery. Well, what's that mystery that was hidden from Old Testament saints that is revealed to New Testament saints? We shall not all sleep. Speaking of our death, we're not just going to stay dead, but we will all be changed. And this is the mystery that's been revealed that we who have had resurrected souls by the power of the Holy Spirit, those who have believed the gospel will someday see Christ when Christ returns and he will resurrect our bodies. We will have resurrected bodies. That's the mystery that's been revealed. Or how about Ephesians chapter six, verse 19, Paul says he preaches, he proclaims the mystery of the gospel. And then this is pretty remarkable one here in Ephesians chapter three, verse number four, the mysteries of Christ What is the mystery of Christ? It is verse six. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same bodies, of the same body, partaker of the promise in Christ through the gospel. Here's the mystery of the gospel in Ephesians chapter three. And that is that Gentiles, those who speak other tongues, thats you and I, by the way, we don't speak Hebrew. Well, some of you may, but you're not Jewish. Maybe some of you are. But generally, we're Gentiles, right? And we can be included and have been included by faith into the family of God. That's a mystery that was hidden from the Old Testament saints, but that is now revealed to us. And this is a very important point right here, because the reason that we're gonna see later on, the reason why God gave the gift of signs, or sorry, gift of tongues, was that it was a sign of judgment to the unbelieving Israel. And the gift of tongues was a sign of the inclusion of the Gentiles into the gospel family. So we'll look, about, look at that later. But let's get back to our text here this morning. And that is, this is a prayer of praise about the gospel. In fact, I'm going to show this to you. Go to Acts chapter 2. Go to Acts chapter 2. And let me just, I'm not going to go through the entire section of Acts. Actually, we're going to wait till next week to do that. We're not going to go through this account here. But just to briefly show you in Acts 2, that the 120 disciples are praying praises to God. Acts chapter 2. You can see 120 Jewish disciples are praying. In different languages, this is a fulfillment of Christ's promise the Holy Spirit would come to those who believe in him. Look at Acts 2, look at verse number 7. The crowd is amazed because these 120 are walking through the streets and they are speaking in other languages, languages that the people around there understood or some of the people from outside of Jerusalem that were visiting understood. Look at verse 7. And they, that's the crowds, were amazed and astonished. And then he goes through and talks about all the different languages, all the different people groups that are there, and all the different languages they were speaking these words in. Look at verse 12. We hear them telling in our own tongues, in our own languages, we hear them telling in our own tongues what? The mighty works of God. And by the way, this is the only, these are the only ones who speak this in the gift of tongues in Acts chapter two. These 120 disciples are the only ones who exercise this gift. Peter preaches and there's not the gift of tongues after that. People get baptized. There's not the gift of tongues for anyone else. It was just for these disciples right here. And notice what these disciples, these 120 disciples are doing. They are praising God for the, they are, I should say, they're speaking the mighty works of God. Now, let me ask you this question. What are the mighty works of God? I mean, it's his salvation, right? It's, well, I mean, what's the mightiest work of God? It's the fact that he saves your soul by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, right? That's, and so is that what they were talking about? Again, we don't really know because it doesn't say there. It just says the mighty works of God. So it's likely that they were praising God for the work of salvation. So I imagine and maybe some of the disciples were speaking these other languages and they were going around and saying things like this. Hallelujah! Jesus Christ is risen from the grave. Praise God! Jesus came as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. Again, we don't know what Exactly, they were saying, but they definitely were speaking the mighty works of God. Now, you might say, Pastor Ben, I don't see in Acts chapter 2 that it says they were praying. Didn't it just say, look at verse 12, didn't it just say that we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God? Well, two points demonstrate that this was a prayer. First of all, the disciples were not addressing the crowd. They were just speaking the mighty works of God. And the second reason we know this is a prayer is Acts chapter 10 tells us that it was a prayer. So go to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 tells us that what was happening in Acts chapter 2 was a prayer. Acts 2, the Holy Spirit came upon the Jewish believers. Acts chapter 10, we see that the Holy Spirit comes upon the Gentile believers. And this is the fulfillment of what Christ said. He said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And you're going to go to Jerusalem and Samaria and to the othermost parts of the earth. And so we see this, this, this growth of the gospel. And therefore we see the sign of the gift of tongues. And notice Acts chapter 10, verse 46. Again, I'm not going to go through the whole account this week. We'll do that next week. Acts 10, 46. For they, that is Peter and the other uh, Jewish disciples, for they were hearing them, that's the Gentile disciples, speaking with tongues, and what are they doing? Magnifying God. So Peter and the Jewish disciples heard the Gentile disciples magnifying God. So who were the Gentile disciples addressing? They were addressing God. And how do we know that this is the same thing that happened back in Acts chapter 2? How do we know they're praying here praises to God? How do we know they were praying praises back in Acts chapter 2? Well, look at, look at verse 47, Acts 10, 47. Peter says, can anyone refuse water for these to be baptized, that's the Gentile believers, who have received the Holy Spirit, notice this, just as we did just as we did, in the same way we did. In fact, Peter restates this in Acts 11.15. Look at Acts 11.15. He goes back to the apostles, and they're surprised to hear what the Holy Spirit's come to the Gentiles as well. And so Peter reported in Acts 11.15, he says, as he's retelling this, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, that's the Gentile believers, just as on us when at the beginning well, what was the beginning this is the beginning of the church that's pentecost that's when the holy spirit fell on the jewish believers in acts chapter 2 he's saying it's just the same way like just what happened in acts 2 happened in acts chapter 10 so what was happening in acts 10 they're praying praises to god what's happening in acts 2 they're praying the the wonderful works of God. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Because evidently this is a a prayer of praise speaking the mysteries in the spirit. So tongues was a supernatural gift to praise God in a real human language which was unknown to the speaker. Now let me just ask you this, isn't that pretty cool? Right, I mean, think about that. Think about these people getting up and they're praising God for redemption in Christ in a language that they don't know. And herein is the problem with the gift of tongues. It was very showy. It was out there. It was something that was unique. And so many in the church of Corinth sought out this gift because of the nature of this gift. And so what Paul says in 1 Corinthians Chapter 14, to correct them, he says, stop desiring those spiritual experiences like that. You need to desire God's word through prophecy. Why? Because God's word builds up. So look at verse 3, First Corinthians 14, verse 3. And I hope you're staying on track with me here. 1 Corinthians 14, 3. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their Upbuilding and encouragement and consolation, verse 4 the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. So what does this mean? What does it mean he builds up himself? Well, it means that if no one understands your prayer, then no one else is edified. Even if, even yourself, as the speaker, you're clueless as to what is being prayed. In fact, let me just show this to you because some of you probably are wondering where this is at. Look at verse 14. Look at verse 14. The speaker doesn't even know what he's saying. Verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. In other words, my mind doesn't even know what I'm actually saying. So what does, go back to verse four. So what does it mean that the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself? Well, first of all, this is not a command to speak in tongues to build yourself up. A lot of people go to this text and say, see this right here, it says, commands us that we are to speak in tongues. That's actually not what is happening here. There's not a command here to build yourself up by speaking in tongues. This is an observation that if you are the only one ministering in the church and no one understands what you're talking about, you're the only one who benefits. That's what it's talking about. And so he goes on to say in verse number four, but the one who prophesies... Builds up the church. Remember, you're speaking God's word when you're prophesying. Verse 5, now I want you all to speak in tongues. So it's not that he's saying it's wrong or it's something he didn't want them to do. But he's saying, he's saying verse 5, I want you to speak in tongues. But even more, I want you to desire something even more. And that is to prophesy. That is God's word. The one who prophesies is greater. In other words, his ministry is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Why is that? Because the one prophesying is ministering God's word and people understand him. And he says in verse number five, the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. So tongues can only be a blessing if what? If there's a translation, if there's an interpretation. In other words, you understand what that language is in your own language. Verse number six. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues and it's in another language, how will I benefit you? How will you be profited? And that's a rhetorical question. And what's the answer to the rhetorical question? There is no profit to you. If I got up here and started speaking in, in you know some Swedish language, is that Swedish? Is that what it's called? It doesn't sound like that. It'd be Swedish, Danish, Russian, whatever it is, another language, would you be blessed? Well, only if you understood that language. So he's saying here, he's teaching here about the principle of profitability. That when we gather as a church, we need to consider what's going to profit the church to spiritually build us up. And what he's saying what profits the church is not religious hype. It's not an spiritual experience. It's actually God's word. That's why in verse six, he says this, now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation that's the revelation of God's word, or knowledge, that's the knowledge of God's word, or prophecy, that's the declaration of God's word, or teaching, that's the explanation of God's word. All of these things relate to one thing, and what is it? It's God's word. He's saying God's word is what builds us up. And then he gives the illustration of music. Verse seven, even If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? If a bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? And instruments like we have on stage, they're they're beautiful. They can play beautiful music. And they're wonderful mediums to communicate truth. But they're only a blessing to you if you correlate The notes with some words, right? And if if they go together and they make a, a beautiful sound, but also they coordinate with lyrics as well. And for instance, let me let me bless you with just music. See if you can guess what this song is. What is that one? What is it? Amazing Grace. So you were blessed, hopefully, by that humming because you recognized the words that were amazing grace. John Newton, a slave owner, a wicked man, he said, I'm a wretch. I'm a wicked man. But Jesus is a savior. And he called upon Jesus to save him. And he says, amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. And you know you're a wretch too. And, in, and Christ has saved you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And so when I hum that, you're blessed. How about this one? Do-do-boop-boo, do 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 How many of you were blessed by that? How many of you were annoyed by that? <laughs> okay, everyone in here. And why is that? Because it doesn't mean anything to you. See, distinct notes with lyrics, bless the church, Because the notes and the lyrics communicate truth. And so distinct words in your language can bless you because it can communicate the truth of God's word. And so he's saying, if someone speaks gibberish or if someone speaks a language you don't understand, there's no blessing in that for the church. And so verse number nine, he says, so with yourselves, if your tongue, if with your tongue, you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what? is said. And Paul's point is that tongues is a human language, but no one is edified if you don't know that language. Now, you might ask the question, Pastor Ben, how do you know it's a real human language? Because we hear often that it's it's gibberish or it's an angelic language or something else like that. How do we know this is a real human language? Well, first of all, the word tongues there, tongue or tongues, tongue is singular, Tongues is plural. It's from the Greek word glosa. This word is used 15 times in this passage of scripture, 1 Corinthians 14. <clears throat> Let me add that I don't take the view that plural tongues are known languages and singular tongues are a speech. And I think, most importantly, I don't take that position because hermeneutically there's no indication that we should from this passage. But 15 times the word glosa Tongues is used in this passage. The word in the New Testament is used in two ways. One for the actual tongue. So in the book of James, we see that the tongue is like a fire. It's dangerous. It can, it can hurt, but also it can bless. So that word is used for tongue there. Second, the second use of the word glosa is for intelligible languages, human languages. 50 times in the New Testament, when the word glosa is used, it speaks of a real human language. It's 50 times. So when we say speaking in tongues, it's probably better to render it like this. Speaking in human languages. Because that is the word, what the word tongues mean. Now there is one time that I need to point this out. There's one time in the scripture when this is not a human language. And that's in 1 Corinthians 13.1. So just flip over there briefly. 1 Corinthians 13.1. And I bring up this passage because many people go to this and they say, ah, oh, tongues is speaking an angelic language. And there's a problem with that. There are two problems. Number one, the scripture never indicates that. So you can't conclude that. Number two, 1 Corinthians 13.1 is using hyperbole. It's extreme exaggeration to demonstrate the value of love. In fact, look at verse one. He says, "If I was able to speak in the tongues of men and angels." And the angels. And the idea is, if I had the ability to speak every language on earth and to speak the language of angels, so he's using extreme exaggeration. Does anyone have the ability to speak every language on earth? No. In fact, look at verse number two. You can see that I explained this a couple of weeks ago. But you know, if I had the ability to understand everything, in other words, like I was omniscient. Does anybody have the ability to be omniscient, right? No, it's, that's extreme exaggeration for the purpose of this, that if you were, had those amazing gifts, if you did it without love, it would profit you nothing. So go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want you to notice where this word is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The word tongues is used there as well. Glossa. Glossa. Verse number 10, to another, various kinds of tongues, human languages, to another, the interpretation, the, the uh, translation of these languages. And notice in verse 10, the noun kinds, various kinds of tongues. The word kinds is the noun uh, genos. Genos, think about genos, think about genealogy or families. That's what the word means. It means different families, different genealogy, genealogies. So Paul is speaking of a gift to speak various, notice this, language families. Actually, what's interesting is linguists have classified all languages into language families. According to linguisticsociety.org. language family is this. It's a group of languages that can be shown to be genetically related to one another. Isn't that interesting? Genetically related to one another. Similar to how a person's family comprises people who share common ancestors. Language families also share common lineages. Here's an example on the screen. Okay, here we go. On the screen of a language family. It's the Indo-European language family. That's, that's the branch on the left. And you can see that comes from the, the large tree on the right, which is supposed to be all the languages of the world. And there are many, many language families. But English comes from the Indo-European language family. And one of the branches that goes up, you can't, it's so small, how can you even see that? But one of those branches go, is the Germanic, branch and it ends up with English at the very top, okay? If you speak Spanish, you're actually a different branch. You're going off to the the romantic languages, okay? That's a different branch. So we actually have more, uh, we're more akin with, uh, with German and with Dutch if you speak English. One of the largest language families is the Sino-Tibetan language family that's Uh, One billion people speak those language languages. That's predominantly Chinese. So we could go through all these different ones. But the point is, here what we see is we see these different language families. And the interesting here, the gift was the ability to speak in these various language families. Notice this, this in verse number 28 as well. Notice 1 Corinthians 12, 28. God has appointed in the church, the very end of the verse, various families... Kinds of tongues. Go to First Corinthians chapter 14. Notice this same word is used. Genos in verse number 10. First Corinthians 14, 10. There are doubtless many, and that's different. The word different is genos, is families, different family languages in the world, and none is without meaning. And so verse number 10 is telling us that languages have meaning. And that's kind of like a duh, right? That makes sense. Look at verse 11. If you do not know the meaning of a language, I will be a foreigner, a barbarian to the speaker and a speaker to me. And so we know it's a foreign language, a real human language, because he uses the word for language, also because there's a need for translation, There's a need for interpretation in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Twice we see that the gift of tongues is married to the gift of translation. Also, we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look at verse number 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may what? That he may interpret. Pray that he may interpret. In other words, so he can translate what he's saying to everybody else. And the third way we know this is a real language is because of the example of Acts chapter two. And you can read that and we'll see that next week as well. Let me just read through the rest of the passage and then we'll wrap this up. Verse 14, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. That's just a description of what it means to pray in the gift of tongues. Verse 15, what am I to do? What's, what's the conclusion then? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind. In other words, I need to engage my mind. He's not saying, well, that's really good. We should pray in tongues in the church. He's saying, no, 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 no. When you pray, you need to pray with your mind so you know what you're saying. And you need to pray so other people can know what you're saying. I will sing praise with my spirit so inside of me, but also I will sing within me with my mind also. Verse 16, otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, How can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? Verse 17, for you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, verse 19, nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 Words in a tongue. And let's imagine we had two services this morning. You could choose between two services. One service, I mean, the adrenaline was pumping. And the person up here, I mean, they were getting you really revved up. And let's say they even read the entire book of 1 Corinthians in French. In English, the, first, the book of 1 Corinthians, the letter of 1 Corinthians, has almost 10,000 words. So they were to read that passionately. I mean, this thing went on for three or four hours, but you didn't hear the service in English or in the language you speak or you understand. You heard it in a foreign tongue. So you had that service. And that went on for hours. There's a lot of jumping. There's a lot of high-fiving, a lot of people on the ground. Okay, whatever, that's going on. Then we had another service. Everyone comes in and they sit down. And I stand up in English, if that's what you speak, And I say, believe on the Lord Jesus. And then you're dismissed. Which service would be the service that would benefit you? The second one. That's what Paul's saying. I would rather speak five words and be done with the service than have 10,000 words that nobody understands. Why is that? Because we are spiritually built up in the spirit, as the Bible says, in the spirit of our minds. In other words, it's our minds that are to be renewed. And if I were to say to you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, how could that edify you? Well, if you don't know, don't know the Lord Jesus as your savior, you could see that that is God's means to save in you. If you believe in Jesus, that he's the savior, he's the Lord, you can be saved. And friends, all of us as believers we live and believe the gospel every day. Every day we believe Jesus is our savior. Jesus is our Lord. And so those five words can edify you as well. A local church profits in building up one another by maturing the mind, not by religious experience. Why did you come to church today? Did you come with the desire to have your mind changed? Did you come with the hope that the Holy Spirit would renew your thinking and help you to think more like God's word? Did you come in here with the the desire to understand what's being sung and and look at those words and think about the meaning behind the words on the screen? Did you come with with the desire to have God Transform you by the transformation of your mind, or did you come saying, "I just want to feel something today"? And I think that's the contrast that Paul is making here. And friends, if if you if you're on that latter end, if you're on the end of, "I just want to really experience God," what he says in verse twenty is that's immature thinking. You need to grow up. And what growing up means is this: set your alarm in the morning. And get up and read your Bible. Set your alarm in the morning or at night. Get up on Sunday morning and come to Sunday class. (laughs) And, and, And desire teaching. Sit in a room like this under the preaching of God's word and get a pen, get your Bible, get your notes, and learn. Have God take his word by the power of his Holy Spirit and change how you think. Put off the old man, Ephesians says, Put on the new man, and it's done by the renewing of your mind. And so may we as a church gather to benefit one another as we seek to have our minds matured to be more and more like the mind of Christ. Let's pray.